0: Here's your host, Alex Garrett.
1: Well, we're going to the sports edition of Alex Garrett Podcasting today, because on my line right now is a very good friend of mine for years, Howie uh, Carpin. You might know him from Carpin's Corner. Howie, you are an official scorer for both the Yankees and the Mets, and thanks for coming back to my podcast.
0: Oh, any buddy. We know each other a long time.
1: So let's talk about today, because for many, I'm sure they still remember, Doc Gooden's home um, no-hitter was, what, 1996, so I guess 25 years ago today. Is that right? That's insane. But yep. were you there that night, and, and did you score? And who was the official scorer that night?
0: The official score. I, w- I wasn't hired yet. I got hired in 98, where I did one game. But uh, Bill Shannon scored that game, and he also scored the uh, David Cone perfect game.
1: And what were your memories of that night? Because I feel like this is a special moment to talk about 25 years later.
0: Yeah, it is amazing. I mean, uh, you know, I've been lucky because I've, I've been uh, live at four no-hitters, and that happened to be the second. I was at the Jim Abbott one in 93. And then, you know, it's funny. He walks the first guy, Darren Bragg, <laughs> excuse me, and then the next batter was Alex Rodriguez in the top of the first. And he hit a ball to center field that looked like it was going to be an extra base hit, and John Williams made one of the great catches of that season. <clears throat> Excuse me, <clears throat> and he he turned it into a double play, and from that point on, Gooden rolled. I mean, he had a couple of walks, and obviously got to the ninth inning, and you know it was it was amazing the atmosphere because people don't remember that Gooden actually went to a no windup for that game. He altered his motion, went to a no windup. His father was in the hospital at that time, so there was a lot going on that night. He was trying to make a comeback, and the Yankees took him on that year, and uh, he had a night. It was tremendous, and uh, the, the fans were going crazy. They they lifted him on their shoulders to walk him off the field. I'm sure you'll see highlights of that, you know, throughout the day and stuff like that. But uh, it was a magical night, and I was uh, so you know pleased to be there.
1: Well, let's talk about Doc for a second because obviously. Yeah, as you say, there were so many circumstances of him coming back that were special. First time we were giving him that second chance. And that seemed like a really redemptive moment for Dockman, wasn't it?
0: Yeah, especially with his father in the hospital at that time. You know, he was close to his dad. You know, his whole journey, how he came up, he was this phenom. And with the Mets, he he looked like he was on his way to the Hall of Fame. And then he had the issues, his personal issues that kind of sidetracked him. And George Steinbrenner gave him a shot. And uh, it peaked on that night. And he, he even, you know, later on in that year, he wasn't even a factor. I, I, if I remember correctly, he wasn't even on the postseason roster that year. But, uh, you know, he had his night on May fourteenth, nineteen 1996, and he went into the record books.
1: Do you think that was a good start for what that year would bring? Because that seems to be the catalyst for the start of a championship run that year. Would you agree?
0: Yeah, that seems to be, you know, it, it's funny. Throughout the season, there are little bookmarked games that occur, you know, in 1969, many attribute that night that Seaver almost pitched the perfect game as the bookmark of that season when it appeared the Mets could really do something special. The Yankees are, had been in a drought, as we all know, from 81 to 95. They finally made the playoffs, and then they lost that tough series to Seattle. So, you know, there was a lot of optimism going into 96. But, yeah, you're right. That that may have been the the bookmark game that indicated that this may be a special season.
1: From an official scorer's standpoint, I know there was one play that night I was reading about that might have gone a hit way, but it went to an error on Tino. Do you remember that and how that call went down? And it seemed to be a big changer in that game.
0: Yeah, that was an error. I mean, most scorers would call that an error from what I remember. I, haven't, I don't remember the video of it. But I, I do remember he called that play, and that happened to be the only error in the game. But, uh, you know, Bill was a... It was the best. I learned from the best. And, uh, you know, he knew what he was doing every night he was in that chair. So, you know, that that was a legitimate error call. No one really argued it. There was no appeal system at that time. They weren't going to appeal it to overturn a no-hit game. It would have been, you know, really petty. But uh, that was a legitimate error that night.
1: Well, you talk about uh, how the game's changed from then. If we had replay system back in 2012 even, Johan Santana wouldn't have had that no-hitter. So, A lot has changed in the last 25 years. But for you, Howie, and any official scorer, you see these games happening. What's the pressure like? I feel like people don't even talk about the pressure of the official scorer, but there is some, is there not?
0: There is in different ways. You know, you can can have a a close call in the first inning, and that could end up being the only hit, you know, for six, seven innings. And then people might come up to you and, and say, You know, you may want to look at that first one, and as you call back in the first inning. So there's different kinds of pressure. Yeah, there's the obvious pressure of you know no hits, and then you're going into the seventh and eighth inning. You know, as scorers, we have to call it. You know, just because it's a no hitter, we can't lean towards calling an error on a play because you want to keep the no hitter intact. We have to call it. It. You know, if it's the ninth or the first or the second, we can't be. You know, be what I call situationally score. You know, a lot of people, you know, on the outside, they score on emotion. I had that the other night with the Met game on Friday night when that guy Pat Malika came up, and he and I called that a fielder's choice, and the Met broadcasters wanted it to be a hit out of emotion, but that was the correct call, fielder's choice RBI. I'm sorry I couldn't give him a hit, but that's how we have to score. We can't, you know. Yeah, it would have made a nice story that he got his first major league hit on a walk off. But I'm sorry that, you know, that's the way we have to score the game. So, you know, we can't situationally score. But, yeah, there's pressure. We know what's going on. We see the scoreboard. You know, you get to six, seven innings. I had a game in 2004 before the Mets' first no-hitter in 2012. Tom Glavin was pitching a perfect game into the eighth inning, and it looked like he was going to get it. But then with one out in the eighth, a guy named Kit Pellow, hit a ball into the right field corner to end the the no-hitter in the perfect game. That's the one thing you want as a scorer. At least, you know, if there's a hit, let it be clean, and then there's no arguing. You know, but you just do your best and and deal with the situation if it does arise.
1: Well, let's talk about that, too, because, you know, I've heard, because I've kept score for certain games in college level, but uh, the phrase I've always heard is, let's not be the storyline, right? So, the official scorer really cannot be the storyline, and most times they're not, but there is that tendency to make them the storyline. How how much work is it to stay out of the, the headline, if you will? It's not
0: work. It's the circumstance. And now, the job has changed over the years because there's more interaction with the broadcasters now than than ever. And it never used to be like that. They rarely mention you. But now they talk about you a lot because uh, you know, you're involved, your name's on the scorecard, and, and sometimes you become the story. Unfortunately, it's out of your control. You know, it's more circumstantial, but the, you know the Met announcers talk about me a lot and and very complimentary, I must say. Yankee announcers too. Michael K. has been very kind, and you know, and they, you know, we we you know you grow up in New York. You know how tough we are on baseball here. It's a baseball town. We take it serious around here more so than maybe a lot of other cities. So you know, it it, it becomes. The job has become you're like a diplomat, but you're also dealing with outside factors when the broadcasters start talking about you. And luckily, they haven't been too critical over the years, I have to admit.
1: Have you done a DeGrom game? Because I'm kind of curious what it's like to read off his line in the press box every time he pitches. It's got to be special because you're saying like seven, eight innings, no runs, no hits. Yeah, it's quite a line he puts up every night. Have you been able to score some of those games with DeGrom's? Yeah,
0: I did. I did two of his games. I did the game he actually came out the other day in the fifth inning. But you're right; it is it is special to read those lines. Gary Cole, like you read, no walks, twelve strikeouts. Yeah, you get a little bit of a charge reading that kind of line. You know, I did that Astros combined no hitter in 2003 uh, against the Yankees, and uh, you know, I got to I got to say no runs, no hits. Yeah, but yeah, it is special. And, uh, you know, when you see, I'm, I was a pitcher in my time. I played college one year, and I played in the 10 years in the Sandlots. So pitching is special to me. And, yeah, it's it's fun to read the lines, and, and uh, especially when it's impressive. You kind of accentuate some of the numbers that stand out. You know, like I, I'll say 12 strikeouts instead of just 12 strikeouts, a little bit, bit more emphasis on the number.
1: You know, we're about to hit a strikeout race, by the way. I don't even follow the Corbin Burns. He ended his consecutive streak. Uh, Garrett Cole could top that par- fairly easily. It's, it's very interesting to watch. Why is pitching becoming more of a dominant force than it has been in quite a while, to be honest?
0: Well, I have a couple of theories about that. One, the approach of the batters. You know, they swing for the fences all the time now to try and maximize their at-bats, which is it, its really a ridiculous approach. And also, launch angle has come into play, and the pitchers have figured out how... to You know, Keith Hernandez, to his credit, like two, three years ago, when launch angles started to come in, he said, you know, the pitchers are going to figure it out and they're going to throw, you know, balls upstairs and you guys are not going to be able to hit it because they're swinging up and they're never going to really hit it fair if they swing up. So the pitchers have figured it out and the batters have not adjusted. So now you've got this extreme advantage for pitching Oh, it's almost like we've reverted, we've reverted back to the 1968 season, which I, I was 14 years old. I remember it well. You know, the pitching dominated. They had to lower the mound. There was a whole bunch of adjustments made, and then eventually the DH came into play. So, we made. you know, it's funny how baseball goes in cycles, and they kind of repeat themselves. So the, the hitters now are going to have to make an adjustment. And I'm surprised, you know, even in the minor leagues, you are not teaching guys to cut down your swing with two strikes You know, it's a real you know problem for baseball because it takes away from the action. You don't want to see pitchers and catchers pitch and catch. You want to see balls in play. You want to see defense. You want to see running bases. You want to see relays, things like that. You know, they've gotten away from that now with all this new data and all this stuff that they think is helping them win. But it's if it was so great, why isn't everybody winning? You still have the same amount of bad teams and the same amount of good teams. But now the product is really suffering. For guys like myself and you, we, You know, we have such a passion for the game. It's really distressing.
1: Well, do you think the shift, because I know mustangs wrote about this, I'm sure you have some thoughts on it, is the shift becoming a negative thing for this game? It once was a novelty. But now everybody does it. And it's, you know what's interesting? Because of that shift, actually, the Yanks got a couple of double plays out of it. But overall, is the shift good for the game? Is that a, is that a thing that's changing the, the dynamic as well?
0: It has changed the dynamic, and I don't, I, I don't think it's very good for the game, although you can't outlaw it unless the, the league makes a ruling on it. But, you know, you know, pitchers don't say anything. But if I'm on the mound and they have a shift on, like, for a left-hand hitter, and then I get the guy to hit a routine ball with a shortstop and it goes into the outfield for a hit, you know, i got to be a little pissed off about that in my mind. But they're not complaining about it. I don't think they want to make an issue of it. But it's really gotta be distressing because you know, even if you shift, there's still openings on the field. You can't cover the whole field no matter what you do. So it's up to the hitters to make again, make that adjustment. But they're not doing it, so they they you know, they get they fall into that trap to where the pitchers are dominating them and they're not getting their hits. So the batting averages are really abysmal this year. There's also been a you know, a thing where In the new age, that batting average is not as important as on-base percentage, and I find that to be a bunch of garbage because I'll take a 340 hitter in my lineup over a guy who will walk. You know, a runner on third, two out, what good does a walk do? They, They teach you, don't leave it up to the next guy. All right, if he doesn't throw you a pitch, you can hit. All right, you take the walk. But they're throwing stripes, and they're still looking at them. These guys look at balls right down the middle. They don't swing. Clint Frazier a couple of times, and he's been struggling this year, Earlier in the year, he's two and zero, and there's a fastball right down the middle, and he's looking at it. I mean, where is, where is the philosophy for the hitters to make up for the pitchers making the adjustment?
1: Oh man, so many so many good points, there. Howie. I've got to ask you. Um, you talked about analytics earlier. Does the official scoring uh, come into play with the stats? Like, do they really try and hit on? you know, come to you a lot more now because they want the stats to be a certain way because of the analytics. Have you seen that?
0: Yes, with the appeals. See, there's an appeal system now that they negotiated into the CBA where the players can actually file an appeal on their own. They used to have to go through the PR department, and and those PR people got frustrated because it added more work for them, and it really became a pain in the neck. So they negotiated into the latest CBA, which is up after this year, that the players could do it on their own. It's easy now. All you have to do is get a video of it, of your play, attach it to an email, and file a a form for your appeal. So they use that now in some of their appeals, like saying, oh, the ball was hit 115 miles an hour. So, I mean, you got a glove on it, a ball comes right to you. I don't care if it's 300 miles an hour. You should catch it in the major leagues. But they, yeah, they're using some of those numbers to try and win those appeals. Thankfully, we've had discussions as scores. We've had group discussions saying that, you know, that shouldn't be such a fact. I mean, you're at a ball game, Alex. You know, you know when a guy hits a ball hard. Do you really need a number on it? I mean, no. a, a ball goes over the just gets over the wall at at a ballpark. It's a home run. But but a guy hits it 480 feet. I mean, big deal. It's the same result. So they focus on this stuff, and they get so obsessed with it that it's taken away from the beauty of the game.
1: And that's kind of why going back on these different eras, like the 96 season, and it kind of brings stuff that nostalgia we need in the time of a very fast-paced, ever-changing game. I'm not going to ask you about the runner on a second, but as a baseball purist, it must drive you nuts.
0: It drives me nuts because... It, you know, I can see the point because I've been at game. I scored a nineteen inning game with the Yankees and the Red Sox that really started to drag about the fourteenth or fifteenth inning. You know, I, I, look, I love baseball. It, it's my passion. It's a big part of my life. But you're sitting there in the seventeenth inning, and you know it's the game's lasting six seven hours. You know, you you want to go home at that point. I mean, you know, you can really drag it down. But I don't like it in the tenth. And here's my Here's my thing with that. I would, I would go for it. I would warm up to it a little more if they started it in the 13th. Play three regular extra innings and then go to the runner on second, which make a little more sense to start it in the 10th. You know, here's another thing with that. Add the three batter minimum rule. Well, now you're bringing a guy in with a runner on second already. To me, they should waive that rule in extra innings and allow the the uh, manager to take the guy out after the one batter, because, you know, you're really punishing the pitchers. You're putting a guy already on second base, you know, conceivably all they have to do is move them and, and get the run. And I know they want to speed up the game, but they're almost stepping on their own toes by adding these things.
1: Well, that's true. I didn't even think about that, but that three batter minimum certainly has changed the game. Uh, how do you score that though? How do you, like, is there a way you have to score it now with the runner on second? Like, is there, or do you score it like a regular inning?
0: No, that that runner on second basically, you know, stands by himself because if he scores, that's unearned no matter what. That is always an unearned run if the guy starts on second. But it does it count? It's an error that's not recorded. That's how he gets to second base. No, no is charged to an individual or the team. But for scoring purposes, that's an unearned run. Now, the rest of the inning would be scored as if that guy didn't exist. And what that means is when when we have a catcher's interference and the guy reaches first base, there's an error charge to the catcher. But it, it see, there's two two compartments with errors. One error is a guy who reaches on an error that should have been an out. Another error on a throw where a guy advances, it's not necessarily, you know, should have been an out, if you understand what I'm saying. So with catches and interference, when the guy reaches on the error, other things that happen in the inning, we don't compute that that person. That person actually is only computed if it scores. It would be unearned. But the rest of the inning would be computed as if that that runner didn't exist. And that's how we have to compute the extra innings. Let's say you got the runner on second, right? And uh guy hits a two-run homer. Next guy up gets on on an error, and then they end up, that that guy ends up scoring, and they score four runs after two out because the, it was a two out error. That would still be four unearned runs, you know, no matter what the guy on second did. If you can understand it, it's a little confusing. But that's how we have to treat the inning, as if that guy didn't exist, the runner on second, the rest of the inning we compute.
1: So, in other words, not that it would happen because if a base is loaded, and I mean, basically the bases could be loaded um, there's not really a runner on third in the record book just first and second is, is what I'm
0: hearing yeah exactly right or first and third or the runner on second wouldn't exist but he would be on there to start the inning so he would end up as the runner at third in that part but yeah that's what that's what how you would compute the inning is if that person didn't even exist
1: I I, I can see it's been tough to adapt to I mean Tony La didn't know that his pitcher could be replaced by the runner before him very strange details for that excellent
0: yeah, oh. yeah well last year we didn't have the we had the universal D8, so the pitchers never were in the lineup and funny and that happened earlier in the year at the Mets I did an early Mets game and that happened and luckily I I not luckily I mean I remembered the rule it didn't matter if I remembered it or not if what happened on the field but I remembered that the pitcher they could use somebody else the person in front of that pitcher in the lineup to run, so you wouldn't have to use a pitcher to run. That was that was implemented when they put in the extra inning rule, but it never came to light last season because we had the universal DH.
1: Let's talk about Doc for a quick minute. By the way, I'm hoping universal DH. I don't know again, in the purest I don't know if it's a good thing. However, if pitchers are getting hurt on the base path, maybe we need to look into that more. What do you think?
0: I'm with you. I mean, I've warmed up to it. I, I, I like. I didn't like the fact that it was different, you know, in each league, the rules. I wanted it to be standardized. So if it's going to be universal DH across the board, we'll live with it. I mean, in in 73, when it came in, you know, there was a lot of uproar. I was 19 at that time, so I remember it well. You know, and then we got used to it, and then we realized that it wasn't worth it for pitchers to hit. There's a few exceptions, obviously, Jacob deGrom. By the way, you know, he could be he's got a little lap problem or something in the side, who knows if batting didn't exacerbate that injury more so than his throwing. So that's another, fact, that's another factor to be considered.
1: Uh, you talk about how you follow this game as a teen. How did you get into the business? And if everybody wants to be an official scorer, I only think I asked in the last podcast, but what was your path and what path would you recommend for those that do want to do the job of official scoring down the line?
0: Well, you got to be around the ballpark covering games. You know, I mean, it, it, it took me 18 years to get an opportunity because I saw when I first started covering games in the early 80s, I saw that media people were doing it, so I thought I could do it. I knew I pre you know, I thought I knew the rules. I thought I could do it, so I kind of like urged them over a number of years. After a while, to give me a shot, and finally, in 98, I got a shot. but if you know the rule book and you watch a lot of games and you're around, then you have a chance, you know, to, to maybe, you know, get in on it or do minor league games or, you know, games, that, uh, amateur games and things like that. That's the best way. There's really no set way to get in. It's uh, it's kind of a field thing, you know what I'm saying? I mean, you got to be at the ballpark a lot. People have to get to know you. I covered a lot of games in the early 80s for radio. You know, I'm kind of unique because I came out of the radio business to be a scorer. I'm the the first radio guy to be a a full-time official scorer in New York, you know, over all these years, so I'm kind of unique. I came out of the radio business. Most people come out of the print medium, so, you know, it was a little bit of a struggle for me in the beginning because, uh, you know, a lot of people didn't think I could do the job. They had their doubts, and I had to prove myself, but uh, luckily I've lasted 23 years.
1: And it keeps going, obviously, because you're still still doing games to this day. Um, Howie, did you ever get to score Docman? Like, I know you came in in 98 there. What, did you get to score him at all or has he retired by then?
0: I don't remember, to be honest with you. I may have had, had a game. Well, he was there in 2000 with the Yankees for a little while, so I don't remember if I actually scored one of his games. There was nothing really special that would stand out.
1: How weird was it I've asked some other people who have been on this podcast before from last year, how weird was it just scoring a game with nobody in the stands and saying attendance was zero? Well, we
0: weren't at the games. We scored from home. They set us up with a computer program. Uh, They sent me an iPad that had the programming. So we did the games from home off the TV, which was pretty difficult. Uh, The the toughest one were were those hard ground balls to the infield because – the camera can't switch fast enough. So those those were difficult, and you relied on the TV to give you certain angles. Now, we had angles on our own, thanks to the computer programming that we got. But, you know, you had to rely on the TV. So scoring at home, you know, was really weird in a lot of ways. I was doing it in my son's room. He doesn't live where he, he's out of the house. So I was doing it in his room. I'm sitting in my shorts, and I have a soda on the table. I have soda at the game anyway, but it was kind of weird doing it off the TV and I'm glad we're back at the park this year.
1: Well, let me ask you then, did you have to communicate with the reporters, like read the lines off in a different way or were you not able to do that from your house?
0: No, we had to communicate through this app called Slack, which we use today. And the person who, there was a a point person at the ballpark who would relay the announcements. So we'd have to type in our announcements and then they'd be, be announced at the games so it was, you know that was that was a process, and sometimes this this drove me crazy. The announcers would make a call on a on a scoring call, like they would say if that was a hit or an error, and then and we hadn't made the call yet. We didn't transmit it, you know, communicated, and and then it would come in, and if it was different from what they first said, they'd say, oh, the scorer changed it. Well, he never really changed it. He never put it out there. So there was you know there was logistical problems with doing the games from home but we were able to overcome.
1: I actually have heard that line, the score change it a couple of times, even before pandemic. I feel like that line's been in use for a while now.
0: Well, sometimes we do change right away because we see a different angle on the play. We have to get a call out sometimes because there's this, there's a, you know, that game day on MLB.com, they're sitting with us. They have to, you know, input the pitches pitch by pitch And, you know, when the next pitch comes, they have to be ready, and and so they need a call sometimes. So sometimes we have to make a call, and then we go over it, and we will change it a little later on. Or the the PR people will still come over, or somebody will come over and ask you to review. They don't do that as much anymore because they have their own appeal system. But they would come over occasionally and say, you know, can you look at that? And I never refuse them if they ask me to look at it, even if I know in my heart I'm not going to change it. I still go look at it out of courtesy.
1: Howie, uh, I got to ask a personal question. How have you guys been through the pandemic, your family and everybody? And also, Harbin's Corner—would you say how to, you know, had its rise through this pandemic? How's it been? Still getting those big guests uh, as we're getting out of this pandemic now.
0: Well, thanks for asking me. We uh, luckily we did all right. My my two boys, my sons, don't live at home. They live. Uh, one lives in Colorado, and one lives in South America. Believe it or not, so. It was me, my wife, and my dog, and uh, thank God my dog helped us get through this because it was you know we were all going crazy and stuff. But what are you going to do? I mean, I we I knew personally people that passed away. You remember Anthony Causey, the sports photographer? I mean that that hit home to all of us. All we all knew him, you know. So that hit home, and it was a tough time. And uh, you know, Carpenters Corner came as a result of a friend of mine who started an internet. Uh, radio network called 365SportsCast.com. So I do the show on Tuesday nights at seven o'clock. I let the, the guests dominate the show because uh, over the years you make a lot of connections, and it, it's been it's been a lot of fun. I get to do it at home. On the whole show, I produce the whole thing, ads, everything, sounders. So it, you know, with the computer, it's amazing what you can do. And you know, luckily I have a lot of friends who who have been gracious enough to come on and stuff, and I uh, really appreciate
1: it. That's awesome. So seven o'clock, three sixty five, sportscast dot com.
0: Tuesday nights, yes. Tuesday
1: nights. All right, I'll plug that on my own page here. No, audio production is so cool, the editing and everything like that. So to incorporate sports and then that editing is is pretty cool. I gotta say. All right, Howie, I gotta ask you this because this week we saw the unveiling of a Yogi Berra stand. Do you have any news on that for us that maybe people weren't aware of?
0: No, it was a surprise to me—a pleasant surprise. I mean, uh, you know, you're talking about an iconic American figure over the 20th century, and I'm happy for his family. I know his granddaughter Lindsay; she's wonderful, and uh, the Bower family. I don't really know the rest of the family, but uh, I'm sure they're pleased by this honor. It's a great honor to have you—you know, your your grandfather on a stamp, a famous baseball player, certainly a baseball icon, and uh, it's really cool. I mean, it, I used to be a stamp collector myself, so, I, you know, it hits home a little bit.
1: That's awesome. No, it was cool to see that as well. And if you've ever met Yogi, he was a trip, and he was such a great guy at the same time. Like, everything about him was amazing, as you know, because he'd seen him around the ballpark almost every day.
0: Oh, yeah. I mean, uh, I covered him when he was a manager, you know, in the early 80s, and he loved it. he loved the football Giants. He would talk football Giants as we got, you know, into September and stuff like that. So he's a big Giants fan, a big sports fan, and a really cool guy to get to know. I didn't really get to know him, you know, intimately just from the outside, but to be around him was a pleasure.
1: He's on baseball, but I know also you love hockey, right? You mentioned on the other podcast we were on. So big news with the Rangers, I mean, they fire Quinn. They fired J D. and Morton. It was seemingly a, a shocking two weeks of your Rangers pain.
0: Would you agree? Shocking and worrisome because I don't know what what direction they're going to take from here. They were on the right track. Look, you know the Islander games. They they knew they they were outmatched against a lot of these teams in their division right now because they're just not ready to win. I mean, they're trying to develop a team with skill. They do need some grit, and I'm sure Davidson and Gordon would have addressed that in the off season. Now you worry that they're going to try and speed things up and get rid of somebody that they, they shouldn't trade, you know, to bring in a veteran guy. I, you know, in the early 70s, you are not around, obviously, but the Rangers had a really good team. They were building a good team. And then all of a sudden, they started to tr- make these silly trades where they traded a young player for a veteran. And the most significant one was that they traded a, a prospect named Rick Middleton to the Boston Bruins for Ken Hodge, who the fans hated when he was with Boston and they hated him 10 times worse when he came here because he was washed. His career was done and the Rangers gave up the guy and went on to have a great career. I just hope we're not going to see the same repeat of that now in this 21st century.
1: Well, I hope not. I mean, they got some great talent, uh, Kako and bread I mean, and Kreider. you got to keep all those guys. I totally agree there. Uh, one last thing on the diamond though, Mets Yankees, we were all, all up to a slow start here, but now things are humming for both teams.
0: Yeah, but the Yankees are still not scoring. I mean, they got away with two out of three, and they scored four runs in this series. You know, there's a lot of things going. The, you know, I, I was high on the Mets going. Let's do the Mets first. I was high on the Mets going in. I think they have a really good team. I really do. You know, and they, they built up their depth. They're playing a lot better defense. They run the bases well. They're more aggressive at the right times. I think they got a good thing going there, even in a tough division. The Yankees have a good team too, but they, you know, again, they're so one-dimensional. And now you, you got an outfield that's not that's really non-productive as a whole. I mean, except for Aaron Judge, you know, the rest of the outfield has really been pitiful. Uh, you know, I, I was high on Clint Frazier coming in. I am shocked that he has been this bad. I really shocked because he's not this bad a hitter. But I have some theories as to why that's happened. Number one, I think he's looking over his shoulder at Brett Gardner. I know fans love Gardner. To me, it was time to, to part the ways. Why bring him back? You already had a Mike Tuchman, who who's basically the same player and a younger player in that regard. So I think Frazier started looking over his shoulder. Then they start taking him out for defensive purposes. Why? His glove has gotten a lot better. He's making spectacular catches. Yeah, he dropped one fly ball this year. That happens. But he's been much better defensively. And then you take him out because you say for defense. It doesn't make any sense the way they're handling him. I think I have a feeling that they've kind of given up on him. Aaron Hicks was a bad sign. I'm sorry. I wouldn't have gave, Aaron, I wouldn't have gave him seven years. I don't think he's that great. You know, he's a nice player. He's not, he's not what you call a lead player. He's more a complimentary guy. Gary Sanchez's regression has really hurt. You know, they, uh, you know, LeMay, who's not off to his usual quick start, He struggled a little bit, and that's surprising, because he's the buffer in this lineup. He's, he's the outlier, the guy who will get to hit the right field, who won't swing for the home run. So they really need his back to get going. And their pitching's been great. I mean, their pitching's been outstanding, and you hope they don't waste it. I mean, Cole is Cole. He's fantastic every time he goes out. Corey Kluber's picked it up a little bit. Tyona, right, he had a bad outing last night. Montgomery, I like a lot. I, like his le- I-, I liked him from the start, and he's still learning. And then their bullpen's pretty good. So their pitching is better than people expected, but their offense is dragging them down.
1: Well, and I don't know, have you ever scored a one nothing game? I mean, I don't remember the last time either team won a one nothing game, to be honest with you.
0: There's a lot of one nothing games this year. If you looked around the scores, you know, there's, there's a lot. The, the refreshing thing is there's not a lot of balls leaving the ballpark like they did the, the past few years. It was going out of style. Double-digit scores every night. You're not getting that every night. Now it's gone to the other extreme where the pitching is dominating the hitting. But you're right, It hasn't been a lot of – I've scored a number of one nothing games, but there haven't been a lot of them over the past few years, certainly for the Yankees.
1: And by the way, speaking of pitching – two no-hitters in one week. We're talking about the 20th anniversary of a a once-was-a-rarity, you know, a no-hitter. Now they're happening almost nightly, it feels like. And then I know it's an unwritten rule to not talk about it, yet Major League Baseball wants people to know there could be a no-hitter. And I'm like, what happened to the unwritten rule of not not talking about it until it's done, right?
0: Well, People distort that uh, legend in a way. You know what happened? If you listen to the great Vince Scully... He never came out and said verbatim that a guy had a no-hitter. He'd always get around it. He would say, well, they have no hits on the board or they have no safety. He would always figure out some way to say it without saying it verbatim. And that's what a lot of the good broadcasters do that, that do believe in that superstition. So, you know, yeah, it, I, I'm a little superstitious. I believe it. It's funny. I'll tell you a little story. In 1978, Yankee playoff game against the Red Sox. That year I had this lucky TV where every time I seemed to watch the game on that TV, they won. So I started out watching, and it wasn't a color TV. that It was a black and white. I started out watching the game on my color TV for the first five, six innings. I went to the other TV in the bottom of the six, and then they ended up winning the game. So, you know, make make it what it, what it is out of that. Yeah, I, I believe in those superstitions a little bit, but I think with the no-hitter thing, I think it's not saying it verbatim, you know what I'm saying? Like get around it, saying, well, they don't have a hit on the board or they have yet to get a hit and things like that. I think those broadcasters that buy into that legend, you know, are the ones that try to get around it.
1: You know, I was just thinking superstitions. My my superstition was always putting my cap down in the right spot. Like if the Yanks won a game and I put that in the spot the night before, it's going back in that spot. So I think in baseball, we just have uh, superstitions lined up in our jeans if well, you
0: remember you you sat in the owner's box remember he used to come out and stand b- behind the radio section when he thought the yankees needed a, some luck that was his lucky spot they used to be right behind my seat in that upper row of that press box
1: i know he used to go around of course bill the baker was up there a lot of great right. um, but <laughs> how he has been really awesome and really special so come back as the season progresses and let us know more about your Official scoring adventures in twenty twenty one. I feel like there's gonna be a lot more on the table here.
0: Anytime, Alex, you just give me a call.
1: You got it. I'm Alex Garrett, and of course we're always adapting to Alex Garrett Podcast. Stay with us.